Okay, thank you. Please take a seat. Wonderful to see you here this morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian. And if you're joining us online, welcome. And we're, we're glad you can join us in that way. We're continuing our series on the book of Revelation, diving right into chapter 17 today. So please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. And Libby, our, our, our church administrator, pointed out that it's been 10 weeks since we've been in, in the book of Revelation. There was uh, a series from Michael and... I preached some sermons, one-off sermons from other passages. We've had some other preachers. And, uh, but I, I must admit, I have been putting it off. <laughs> I, I have been putting off preaching from Revelation 17. And you heard Amy read it. You've read it before. And you can understand, can't you, my reluctance. And, uh, but today, I, I, I feel in the Lord, I feel ready. And not just ready, but, but eager, keen to preach from Revelation chapter 17. It is such an important chapter of the Bible. It's a privilege to be preaching from this, this uh, tough passage this morning. Now, I've seen many people leave the Christian faith. And I think I'm going to see more people leave the faith in my years ahead. And... If what the Bible says is true, then there's almost certainly people sitting here this morning who profess to be Christians today who will not be Christians some years ahead. The Bible says that, that people will fall away. And even though Jesus promises that, and we're taught to expect that, it is one of the most distressing things about being a pastor is seeing people fall away from the Christian faith. Now, at the same time that it is very distressing, I understand the pull away from Jesus. I do. Because many times I've been severely tempted to turn from Christ. Either I've been frightened or discouraged by the sheer power of evil and the way it seems to dominate this world and cause such misery or I've been seduced by the prospect of freedom, autonomy, uh, a life of irresponsibility that, that, that comes when you don't with, live with Jesus as Lord. And I don't think there would be a single one of you who's a Christian here this morning who could say that you have never felt that pull, that pull away from Christ. And perhaps you're feeling it right now. Perhaps in these days, you are feeling that, that, that pull away from Jesus. Now, for many, this, this struggle that we feel is stirred up and strengthened by what we see. It's, it's stirred up by what we see. You see the church and you see so much that disappoints you. You see too little generosity, too little self-sacrifice, too little love. You see too much greed and selfishness and conflict. You see the world. You're looking at the world and, and you see freedom 
excitement, life, experiences. And you look at Jesus and you see perhaps only austerity and gloom. You see the pressures, even the threats to walk away from Christ. Say you're a Christian and friends may leave you, doors may shut, careers may be ended. Live like a Christian and you must expect disappointment, even abuse and prosecution. Can, can, can you see what I'm getting at here? It's, it's the things that we see, the things that we experience day to day that, that cause us to feel that, that, that pull away from Christ or that, that might be driving us away from Christ, the things we see. Now, the book of Revelation, as we know by now, is an apocalypse. It is a, a pulling aside of the curtain, a pulling aside of the veil, so that we can see beyond what is going on in this world and around us, and we can see into the spiritual realm. We can see what's going on in heaven. We can see this spiritual battle that is raging around us. The book of Revelation helps us to see beyond what is just in front of our noses and what's on the news at night and what's in our newspapers. It helps us to see beyond that. It reveals to us the true nature of godlessness in this world. It reveals to us the awful future of godlessness. This book, the book of Revelation, was written to Christians who were being powerfully tempted by the world to a life of indulgence and irresponsibility, sexual freedom and autonomy. And it was being written to Christians who were being coerced by the world, coerced by the threat of losing family, work, freedom, even their lives. So I, I hope you understand as we approach chapter 17, what this is going to do and why it's so important. It's important because, let me say it again, if you're a Christian, then you're going to feel, to some extent, a pull away from Christ by the seductions of the world. At the same time, you're going to be pushed away from Christ by the threats of the world, by the things that you see and experience going on around you. And here in this chapter, the curtain is pulled aside and we see what is really going on. And we see what's happening in the spiritual realm. And we see the true nature of godlessness, that godlessness that pushes and pulls us, and what happens to those who succumb to us. And Revelation does this, Revelation 17 does this, by showing us three godless, violent, created, temporary powers dominated by one foul desire. Did you notice verse 9? This calls for a mind with wisdom. It's not an easy chapter, but it's important and our Christian future, our Christian lives depend on us seeing this, believing it, taking hold of it, 
and putting it into practice in our lives. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us those minds of wisdom that are needed to understand your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look first of all at the one foul desire that dominates godless powers. So we'll look at the one foul desire, then we'll look at those three godless powers. The one foul desire, look there at verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came up and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And so here we have this this picture of a great prostitute who, of course, represents sexual immorality, sexual unfaithfulness, but at a deeper and wider level, she represents spiritual unfaithfulness. How many times was Israel condemned by the Lord for being spiritually unfaithful to their true husband, the Lord? And we're told right from the outset that she is going to be punished. Verse 3, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And the wilderness we learned from an earlier chapter, is where God's people are. We are on this exodus to the promised land. And there I saw a woman, this is the same great prostitute, sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Now remember back in chapters 12 and 13, we met this evil trinity. This evil trinity of the the dragon and then the beast from the earth and then the beast from the sea. Now what we're seeing here in chapter 17 is this great prostitute and she's all dressed up and looking seductive in her scarlet and her jewels and so on. And what's she doing? She's riding that beast. It's an awful picture, isn't it? She's riding that that beast from the sea. In other words, this beast that's dominated by her, it's her slave. She's riding it like a mule. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And so here we see that this this great prostitute, which symbolizes all that, that seduces God's people away from God, is at the same time just like Babylon, that Old Testament city, the city of Babylon, the city to which God's people were exiled in the 6th century BC. Babylon, which was rich, powerful, 
godless, violent, and the oppressor of God's people. And so we have this composite picture, this this great prostitute, the city of Babylon, symbolizing all that seduces humanity away from God and all that delights to see God's people humiliated and destroyed. And sometimes the great prostitute, sometimes this, this prostitute Babylon figure is manifested in a person. And when the book of Revelation was being written, it was likely that the Emperor Nero was on the throne of the Roman Empire, and Nero was not only a narcissist who thought he was the the greatest musician and actor of his age, and held musical competitions where he would perform and arrange that he would also win. That's Nero, who had uh, this monstrous vanity. It's also immensely cruel. And when he started a fire in Rome and the blame was coming back on him, he scapegoated the Christians. And he had many of them put to death in the most awful way. We learn from the historians that he had some painted with pitch and tied to posts and set alight to illumine his garden at night. This was the cruel... Nero, and sometimes the, the great prostitute, Babylon, is manifested in a, in a cruel leader like Nero. And sometimes it might be manifested in the social media piranhas. I think you know what I'm talking about. And their frenzied attacks on God and, and Christianity and the Bible and all things Christian. It doesn't matter. That's the point. These are symbols. They can represent whatever it is that stands against God. And John, who's writing this, verse 6, he says, I I saw her, and literally I was astonished with, with great astonishment. And then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And what we see here, brothers and sisters, is that the beast represents three godless powers. So we've we've, we've looked at this one foul desire, this prostitute Babylon figure, riding the beast who represents three powers. Let's look at these powers. The first is this beast from the sea, verse 8. The beast which you saw... Once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. And this is the beast from Revelation 13. We read that it resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. It's inhuman. This beast is savage. It's instinct-driven. It's bloodthirsty and blood-curdling. But notice this. It's a creature. And therefore, it, it was made by God. 
and it's completely dependent on God for its existence and fully under the rule of God. And it is being ridden by this great prostitute. In other words, it's, it's dominated and controlled. It's a slave to its, its own lusts. And what's, the other, what's the, the other thing you notice about the beast? Its rule is temporary. It's temporary. It, it once, once was. Now is not. And yes, it will come up out of the abyss, but why? To go to its destruction. And, and so here's, here's this first godless power which threatens to overawe Christians and to pull them away from Christ, this terrifying beast, this leopard, bear, lion-like creature, ferocious, intimidating, overawing, and the book of Revelation says it's just a creature. And it is itself a slave, and its days are numbered. Its destruction is absolutely assured. Let's look at the second power now. There's three. Let's look at the second one. Symbolised by seven hills and seven kings. Verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen... One is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. Now, cities were normally built on hills for protection and, and to dominate the landscape around them. What's seven in the book of Revelation? It's the number of completion... And so what we have here with these seven hills is a symbol of all God-hating communities, if you like. But blink, and, and what, what are the seven hills? Blink, and they are now seven kings. We're talking about symbols here. Symbols are flexible. The hills are kings. The kings are hills. Symbolizing all the earthly rulers that have ever stood against God. Think of Pharaoh. Think of Balak. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus Epiphanes, Nero, Louis XIV, Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, you name it, all represented by these seven hills, seven kings. And not just the, the, uh, the great and notorious figures of history. You could refer just as equally to the petty local government official who delights to make life hard for the local church. And just like the sea beast, these kings are creatures. They depend on God for their existence. And they are ridden. The great prostitute sits on them, dominates them, controls them. And they too, like the beast, are temporary Look back at verse 10. Five have already fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for just a little while. Just a little while. Their destruction is already determined. And let's look at the third and final power. 
one foul desire, three godless powers. We've looked at the beast, we've looked at the seven kings, hills, and now we're looking at ten horns. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war against the lamb. So the horn symbolizes strength. And these kings, horns, they've got no kingdom. Now what's this referring to? We seem to have a a power here, but without an earthly kingdom, without a state. And if we read ahead into chapter 18, we see that this is almost certainly referring to the the merchants of chapter 18. And we'll look at that more carefully next week. But you'll see in verse 3, chapter 18, verse 3, the merchants who grew rich from the great prostitutes, excessive luxuries. Chapter 8 and verse 15, the merchants who gained their wealth from the great prostitute. Verse 23, the merchants who are the world's important people. These merchants, they're like kings, but they don't have a kingdom. But they're still powerful. Now, who's ever had this this experience that, uh, I think my phone is listening to me. I think my phone is listening to me. And, and, and you, think, you think that because you're having this casual conversation with, with your wife or your kids about something, uh, wonder what the weather's like in Ecuador today. <laughs> and, and then you go on Facebook and there are ads for uh, holidays in Ecuador. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You talk about something in a casual conversation and all of a sudden something appears in your news feed and you think, I wonder if my phone is listening to me. And I heard a, an expert and, and he said, uh, no, your phone is not listening to you. It's just that the, the, uh, the Google, Googles of the world and Facebook and so on have so much information about you and are so clever that they they really just can almost predict what it is that that you're wanting to do. And so this expert was saying, no, the phone is not listening. It's just that they can very cleverly predict what you can do. Now, I don't know which is worse. You know, whether my phone is listening to me or whether uh, Google knows so much about me that it can predict what it is that I might be wanting to do in two weeks. I don't know which is worse. But... In any case, today's business titans exercise staggering social influence. Staggering influence. They are what some scholars call a new corporate state. Kings without a kingdom, but still very powerful. And and I, I talk to Christians, and perhaps you're afraid of this. Perhaps you're afraid of this, this, this terrible influence and this terrible power of these merchants, these kings without kingdoms. But what does the book of Revelation say? Pulls aside the curtain and what do we see? 
that these ten kings are creatures, creatures of God. They, 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 they couldn't, wouldn't exist without him bringing them into existence. Absolutely dependent on him for their existence. They too are being ridden by the great prostitute. So they, are in, they themselves are enslaved by this one foul lust. And they are temporary. How, how long does their power last? One hour, it says. And that, that's a symbol that's saying they appear to be almighty, all-powerful, all-terrifying, and their power lasts for that. That's what the book of Revelation is saying. And this chapter ends with three things you need to know in response. So we've looked at the one foul desire, we've looked at the three godless powers that are being ridden by this foul desire, the the beast, the seven kings, the ten kings, merchants. And let's finish with the three things you need to know in response to all this. Chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war against the Lamb. All these beasts and powers and authorities will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. And so if you are looking at what's going on in the world and you're feeling intimidated by godless powers and these godless businesses and merchants and, and, and whatever, and we're feeling frightened, and sometimes they try to seduce us from Christ and sometimes they try to drive us from Christ with threats, there is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, And he is king over all kings, lord over all lords. He reigns over all. And if we succumb to our fear, then that is a practical denial of that truth. That's why the Bible says again and again and again and again, do not fear Do not fear, do not fear, because fear is a practical denial of the truth that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, Here's the second thing you need to know. That those who give in to the great prostitute's temptations will come to loathe her and all that she offered. Look there at verse 15. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And just as Israel became so disgusted with themselves for the way they'd been seduced by Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament, what they end up doing? Threw her out of the window. So disgusted 
were they with themselves and the way she had seduced them. And, and I've heard people say, well, if, if, if I have to go to hell, if I have to get sent to hell, at least I'll have my sin. That'll console me. At least I'll be able to hold on to those things that, 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 that pleased me and pulled me away from Christ. At least I'll have my sin. And this says in hell, you will hate your sin. You'd be disgusted by it, horrified by it. There's no consolation prize in hell. No consolation at all. And, and the third thing you need to know, third and final thing, is that in this world, God sovereignly and without being the author of sin decrees all things that must come to pass, whether good or evil or a composite, to accomplish his own holy and perfect purposes. Look there at verse 17. This requires wisdom. God has put it into their hearts. Who's the there? This is all the godless powers that have been described. God has put it into their hearts. You know, we almost need to stop on every word there, don't we? God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. Look at those godless powers that we're, we're terrified of, that we're frightened of, that seduce us, that drive us away from Christ. Don't be terrified. Whatever they are doing, whatever harm they seem to be wreaking, whatever suffering they seem to be bringing, God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And Revelation 17, verse 17, is saying exactly what Joseph said to his brothers. You remember? When they threw him into the well and they sold him to the Midianite traders and they did evil and they intended evil, Joseph said to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And Revelation 17, 17 is saying exactly the same thing. That all evil can ever do is, is bring about ultimately God's good and perfect plans and purposes. Just like Joseph's brothers. Just like Pharaoh. And God said to Pharaoh, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, and your fist shaking in rebellion for this very purpose that I might show that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And it's what Peter said about Herod and Pontius Pilate who did what God's power and will had decided before should happen. There's Herod, there's Pontius Pilate, plotting, scheming, arresting Jesus, the false trial, the scourging, the crucifixion. Evil 
The most evil thing that's ever happened, the most dreadful thing that's ever happened, and Peter said that Herod and Pontius Pilate did exactly what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They intended evil, God intended good through that. And brothers and sisters, that, that, that's why we can sleep at night. That's why we don't succumb to anxiety and fear because the devil only ever kicks own goals. Only ever. He only ever, despite himself, contributes to the good and perfect plan of God being accomplished. And we will see that in the new heaven and the new earth. It will all become so clear exactly how that happened. Well, there are many who are saying it's, it's, it's a dangerous time to be a Christian. With what's happening around the world, yes it is, but it's always been a dangerous time. Godless powers use times of upheaval to frighten us from Christ. Godless powers use times of peace and luxury to deaden us to Christ. It's always been dangerous. It always will be. And these godless powers seem intimidating or seductive or scary. But here's the truth, brothers and sisters, here's the truth. Curtain pulled aside and we see their true nature. Although they are outwardly powerful, intimidating and violent, they are created beings, dependent on God. Pathetic slaves ridden by the great prostitute, their rule and power is temporary and they are condemned already. So don't be afraid of cultural Marxism, identity politics, cancel culture, anti-discrimination actions, losing your friends, losing your job. Don't be seduced away from Christ by the riches, comfort, carefree life, sexual freedom and so-called autonomy that is being held out to us. These things deserve neither your fear nor your submission, but your contempt. That's what they deserve, your contempt. Perhaps even a grim laugh. Because we see the true nature of these things and exactly how it's all going to play out. And so we turn from our fears with relief and joy to the glorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the beautiful Lamb who was slain. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I could ask the elders forward. We come to the time of communion. Second. I'll just leave it on. Brothers and sisters, 
if, if you're a Christian, then uh, let, let's now turn from these, these awful things, these beasts and prostitutes and hills and kings and these dreadful created things whose doom is already assured. And let's now lift up our heads and turn our focus to the Lamb of God, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. He's so beautiful. And, and, and he is... Uh, let me read again from Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He's the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Freed us from all that terrible slavery and coercion, the terrible doom that comes with godless powers. It's freed us from that by his blood. And he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. And this bread is a symbol of the body of the Lamb of God. I'm going to tear it in a moment, and that will remind us that his body was torn for our sins. And this wine is a symbol of his blood. And it reminds us that, that, that his blood was shed to free us from all these awful things that we've been hearing about this morning. He's freed us. And, and, and this morning, if you are not yet a Christian, oh, can, can you see how important it is that you become a Christian? <laughs> that, that you come to know the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God, whose sin takes away, whose blood takes away our sin. So important. All, your whole eternity depends on that. So if you don't yet know Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, this meal isn't for you. When the elders come around with the bread and the wine, uh, don't take it. It's not yet for you. And if you're living in unrepentant sin, don't take it. It's not for you. If you're not sure whether you should take it, don't take it. Talk to one of the elders. You can see us all. Talk to us afterwards and say, look, I'm not sure whether I, I should take communion, and we'll, we'll help you with that. So as the trolley comes around, you might be tempted well, it's here, I better take it. No. It's for Christians. It's for those who have put their trust in the body and blood of Jesus. It's not for good people. It's for sinful, rebellious people who have turned from their sin to trust in Christ. And if that's you, then when the bread and the wine comes around, take it. And then we'll eat and drink and we will remember and rejoice Jesus Christ loves us and gave his blood to free us and has given us a wonderful, wonderful future, a certain future. And may your faith be strengthened and grow. Let me stress again, this is not for good people. It's for bad people who have put their trust in Christ and turned from their sins. If that's you, take it. You can, you must and remember the death of Christ. And if your uh, parents here and you've got children, then the elders ask that parents advise their younger children, their, their older children, I should say, 
parents advise their older children as to whether they should take communion or not. Again, if you have any questions at all, come and talk to us about that. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's a tough bit of bread. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, the bread and wine we passed around, it's, it's gluten-free, so everyone can participate, which is good. Let me pray, and then the elders will come around. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for these symbols of the body and blood of your Son. And we pray as we eat and drink now that we'll remember Jesus and his love for us and that our faith will be strengthened. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.
brothers and sisters, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus, as you eat and drink, remember his love for you and that by his body and blood he freed you from sin and all its consequences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this meal. And as we are fed on this bread and wine this morning, we're fed by faith on your Son, our Saviour. Strengthen us for the trials that we'll face later today, later this week, for the rest of our lives. Strengthen us in these trials strengthen our hold on the Saviour. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks, Mr. Uh, so we've had a wonderful reminder this morning of despite what we see, um, God is powerful and he 